You're watching Deprogrammed. This is the New Culture Forum's latest show, committed to fighting back against the forces of ideological conformity, particularly among the young. My name's Harrison Pitt, I'm a senior editor at the European Conservative, and I'm thrilled to be joined today, as ever, by Evan Riggs, who is a freelance journalist, and our special guest this week, Lewis Brackpool, an independent journalist and a contributor to The Lotus Eaters. Now, Lewis, you're one of those creatures who's most despised by our liberal elite, the, <laughs> the, the citizen journalist, yes. the person who tells it how it is, goes out there on the front line and often um, you know, demystifies media narratives around mm. certain radioactive subjects. On which political issue in particular do you think there is the most concerted top-down pushback against the, de the, de the democratisation of the media? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's all to do with agendas, narratives, and in particular, uh, NGOs. Um, you know, I talk a lot about the World Economic Forum, cats like that, um, and things such as what they're push pushing out, such as sustainable development, and that obviously weaves in with net zero and, of course, immigration mm -hmm. as well, which is a huge subject. Uh, so it's mostly around that. So mostly around sort of like the sort of hobby horses which the World Economic Forum promote at their annual mm. conferences at, at Davos. Mm. Things to do with, as you say, ESG, sustainability, yes. these, these sort of DEI, DEI all yeah. of these kind of uh, you know officially approved subjects, and then uh, like the need for. Um, countries in the Western world to be completely dissolved and swamped with mass immigration and like, yes. what, like whatever agendas ad ad advance behind that. Um, go on. Yes, um, and it's still a tricky subject even for people that are still not as privy to the subject. Mm -hmm. Immigration is still like a, a very, how, how can I put it, it's still a potent subject for many. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, it's called like the freedom movement, quote unquote, because when I started doing this, it was, I went to an anti-lockdown protest the, uh, the mainstream media at the time wasn't covering it. They weren't asking questions. They weren't asking, why are you here today? So that sort of had me go there and say, well, what are you doing like yes. being here today? And then ever since then, it's sort of weaved in and out of various cultural issues. But there's still a lot of people within this quote unquote freedom movement mm -hmm. on the back of anti-lockdown mm -hmm. um, civil liberties that still find it difficult to process subjects such as immigration, mass immigration, mm. um, uh, replacement migration, all mm -hmm. of these quite potent subjects. Mm -hmm. um, so there's still a long way to go, I think, in terms of discourse. How, um, how much power do you think Davos actually has in shaping, you know, the kind of the agenda behind these things? Because when I look at the World Economic Forum, like, you know, I see things that are like kind of cringe or like things that I disagree <laughs> with, but it doesn't really mm. seem to me that they're like James Bond villains sitting in like a shadowy <laughs> cave, like plotting the demise of the West or something. It, it just seems more like a, like a social retreat for rich people. Yes, I, I've, I hear this quite a lot. I've, I've been to Davos to do some reporting there and to try and figure out whether that is the case or whether it is uh, something a bit more nefarious. And what I've come to the conclusion after doing some digging on you know, partnerships, who they're actually sort of in cahoots with. When you have an NGO that claims itself as a non-governmental organisation, but is partnered with powerful organisations such as the United Nations, for example, and really pushing forward policy across the Western world, you start to wonder, okay, is it just influence or is there something just a little bit more than that? And I'm, I think it's still trying to get to the bottom of that, but sustainable development, uh, especially with ESG, various other concepts that you hear 
at the World Economic Forum with various leaders, the most powerful people as well, uh, from business partners to politicians. Uh, you start to wonder, <laughs> it's a bit more than just uh, sort of like a party get-together conference. Mm. That, that's my view. Um, some people may disagree, mm. but that's absolutely fine. So, okay, what is the, the sort of the thread that runs through immigration or net zero or ESG or whatever? Uh, what, what is the why in why they're doing this? Like, what is actually their motivation? That is a great question. Um, okay, so for me, we're now seeing, if you look at the Home Office, for example, and, um, and how the Home Office is run, at the minute, from what I can see, the Home Office is mostly run by ideologically captured uh, individuals that want to push certain certain narratives or have a certain way of things. Um, I think, in my own personal opinion, I think it has to do with something to do with, uh, with either profit or something to do with <laughs> politicians that can actually make some money from, uh, mm. from mass immigration and um, the labour force as well. Yeah. contracts that's, that's the other thing as well there is this um th th there seems to be this uh unwarranted dichotomy about these sorts of questions when it comes to conspiracy theories sure. either it's completely innocent and there's no there there mm -hmm. or it's a sort of mustache twirling mm. kind of secretive cabal yes, where, where, where yes. like you know led by a single guiding intelligence with one master plan all that sort of thing mm -hmm. like, in most cases there are there are conspiracies like that i mean Conspiracy theories do exist. Uh, conspiracies do exist. I mean, Julius Caesar was killed by a conspiracy. There's nothing, like, mm. there's nothing physically impossible about conspiracies. Mm. But in most cases, in the modern world, in complex um, societies and civilizations, I, I, I would argue that most conspiracy theories, conspiracies, to the extent that they exist, arise through a congruence of different interests, which start mm. from different places but converge onto the same space for different reasons. And so, like the best one would be with like what you referred to earlier as sort of replacement migration, mass demographic transformation, immigration. I would say that the main gu guiding intelligence behind that, or the, the main congruence of interests embedded in that, are sort of like progressive left-wing activists who want to yes. import new minority voting blocs mm -hmm. who they believe will but have the only patterns different from the more conservative ones of the ancestral population. They become a kind of political clientele mm. in the country rather than of the country. Mm. Um, and the left can sort of use them to, as a sort of to like spread a weapon, as a weapon to yeah. weaponize against yeah. the, the, the host population. That's only a conspiracy theory if you say it in your right wing. If you say it on the it, left, indeed, yes. what was it that Vivek called it in America? That's the Democratic Party platform. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And, mm. it, and it has been openly. And like, there have been, I can't remember his name exactly. He had a, he had a, a complex name. I think, I think it was called Roy Teixeira. I don't mm. know how you spell it, spelled it, but he was one of Obama's main advisors. And he wrote a book in the early 2000s called The Emerging Democratic Majority, which, which was talking <laughs> about precisely this phenomenon. So when you pointed out, you know, it's a conspiracy theory. So that's the sort of the political side of it. But then I, I think it's one you mentioned on the financial side of it. You have the, the economic right, not the political left, the kind mm. of economic right who wants to lower labor costs because you can, if you have cheap immigrant labor, you flood the lower ends of the labor yes, market. Absolutely. So they end on the same place, starting from different positions. I've noticed as well in terms of the narrative, see, the, with surrounding the term conspiracy theory. I mean, that's for the last three years, that has been thrown mm -hmm. at a lot of people to sort of shut them up and stop them from actually having open and honest conversations about mm -hmm. potent subjects, um, especially through lockdown, mm -hmm. through uh, other means such as mRNA, all mm -hmm. of these sorts of um, subjects that at the time you couldn't really talk about openly. Mm -hmm. And this, this term conspiracy theory, I mean, if you trace back even the word 
or the term conspiracy theory coming from the CIA with JFK um, and you know the documents surrounding uh, JFK it was used to sort of shut any criticism up mm -hmm. so I'm seeing this term conspiracy theory quite a lot and banded around quite mm. a lot to once again fulfill its purpose of stopping criticism stopping people from actually just having an open conversation um, especially within um, mainstream politics as well um, but even in alternative media which mm. sometimes is a bit sort of frustrating because I'd like the idea of I mean it's wishful thinking but I'd like the idea of alternative media to kind of come together and say look let's get around the table and have a chat mm -hmm. and try and sort of iron out what exactly is going on. When you say alternative media, you mean the business that you're engaged in? Yes, is I guess what, so, yeah. yeah. Is that, yeah. No, just, just to clarify, why is it? Uh, yeah, so like um, from every everyone that isn't part of the establishment. Okay, yes. Um, so that can be from the Lotus Eaters to yourselves to, you know, other people um, across the UK, America, mm -hmm. Canada. Mm -hmm. um, but and what, 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 and you said we should get down and talk and what should, what should we talk yeah, about? Well, things such as... Um, Immigration being one yes. is a huge issue. I think there's, like I said earlier, there's still a lot of people within the alternative media that can't seem to um, still find it so potent to talk about, um, which I think is incredibly important that we should, mm. um, because the figures don't lie. No, indeed. I mean, we saw recently with um, with the amount in net migration. Absolutely, that's gone and that's up. just then. That's just in the in the in the legal yes. in the legal bracket. I yes. suppose as well. I mean, the, you know, it's it, it's. It's all very, it's all well and good to attack conspiracy theorists for conspiracy conspiracy theorists and quote mark for conspiracy mongering for being paranoid and all this sort of mm. thing. But if you have an, a political elite which is seems to be doing everything it can to like, sap all trust from the population, mm -hmm. like, like you know, whether it's clearly doing U-turns on things to do with COVID and COVID measures and then not being honest about it. Mm. What, what the sort of thing you see in, in the, broadening it, just not, not just the political elite, but the sort of big tech elite, get things like the Twitter, like things like the Twitter files happening, oh, yes, yeah. Hancock's WhatsApp mm. files, where it was mm. very clear on so many occasions that the motivations for making certain decisions were kind of short-term political ones yes. rather than considered scientific ones. Like the, the, the more you get at this kind of drip, drip, from our, from the news, from usually from alternative media like yours, or there are also places like the Telegraph. Obviously, that's going to lead to a much more febrile environment where mm. maybe people are going to start using the term conspiracy theory, theory overusing it. I'm yeah. uh, sort of over conspiracy mongering. I'm talking about on our side, mm. but in, there's a sense in which people aren't to blame for being suspicious. Yeah, I forget who said it, but just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that they're actually not out to get you. Indeed, yes. Yeah. And, then, and you might be wrong for the you might be wrong about the reason they're out to get you, or in what way they're out to get you. But the, but it, it, it's not obvious to me that that this, the 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 kind of the embattled right, so to speak, mm. is the what is, is is feeling this way towards it towards its elites. I think it's because if you don't mind me saying, I think because of the last three years, trust within the media framework and trust within media in general, politicians, everything has reached such an all-time low mm -hmm. for so many people. And with the likes of Twitter now under a new regime, if you want to call it that, um, you're now starting to see a broader picture. Whereas, you know, two years ago, <laughs> you were considered a granny killer yeah. uh, by, <laughs> by most people if, uh, if you went against certain narratives. So, mm. I don't know. I think demonization over the last couple of years, I think... Um, not being shown the full truth on certain subjects um, has sort of led people 
including myself, to become way more cynical. <laughs> yes. And uh, now my trust levels are all uh, exactly. gone. And uh, that can be a very, very bad thing. And I do acknowledge that because you can fall into to traps. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people just need to be a bit more privy and aware of, uh, of narratives and what's going on. So why mm. did you decide to go the independent journalist route? Why not sign up with like The Telegraph or something like mm. that? Good question. Um, so when I started, it was YouTube channel. Started obviously a, a little podcast, which I was getting a few people on and started building up some connections. I think it was the idea of, I don't know, you have more of a free reign. Mm. Um, so you have that sort of that civil liberty within yourself, within mm. journalism. So you can you can talk about the tough subjects. You can completely go out there and not have someone over your shoulder. You're your, and own, say, ma you're your own master. Yes, yes, exactly. And um, even within broadcast, I'm a bit you know cynical about Ofcom and people like that. And uh, I did I just didn't like the idea of someone overarching. Mm. But depending, you know, I'm not completely against it. I'm um, you know big fan of. Um, um, of some outlets who are, who are really pushing out there. One that comes to mind is the Epoch Times mm -hmm. um, and people like that who um, really are just down the middle, uh, impartial, but obviously look at things with a broader spectrum as mm. well. Um, but the reason mainly was, yeah, I, I really liked just being out there and just not having someone the, the, to go for. This is interesting though, because uh, the, the, my question would then be, why were you not confident that you would be granted that freedom in mainstream outlets? Mm. So, for, I mean, I, maybe I'm romanticizing the, the history of the press, but uh, the sort of picture you get from reading like all the president's men or watching the film, all the mm. president's men, for example, the book, the kind of the, the story about Woodward and Bernstein mm. breaking Watergate is that their editor took a took, like they met once a month, but the editor wasn't co constantly superintending everything that they were doing. They seemed pretty independent in terms of what they could do. I don't know if that's always been the case, but why did you not think that that would be the case for you, I suppose? I don't know. I think it's more, I think it's just more immense cynicism. <laughs> I really think it is just yes. that. I think it's because during, during the last few years, there were things that a lot of the public wanted answers to. Mm -hmm. And even with requests to mainstream outlets, people weren't getting that answer. Mm. And you know, for me, it was just a case of well, maybe, well, maybe they they're just interested in 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 completely other mm -hmm. uh, you know areas of, of, of subjects. But for mm -hmm. me, it's probably cynicism. If I'm it. totally honest, yeah. if I'm totally open. You know, I actually I rewatched All the President's Men couple of weeks ago yeah, now. Really. and I, I was I was watching and I was thinking about it and I was like it's so funny that everyone always brings this up as mm. like the quintessential journalism film have you seen this I you, gotta watch, you should you gotta watch, watch it, it. Yeah. over Christmas you've got yeah. plenty of time it's a really good movie the, all the presidents man it's, it's about Watergate and how they, oh, how they cool. broke the story okay. and everyone always points to this as like this is like gumshoe journalism they're like knocking on doors yeah, and they're, they're in the office yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like this is this is the one and it's like yeah, the reason this one gets brought up all the time, the reason this one is used as kind of the quintessential journalism film is because it was exceptional. If that mm. was the normal day-to-day, -day, mm. nobody would really give a shit. Yeah. Indeed. I think it's because as well, like, it's, it's so easy now. You, if a doctor can be paid, if a politician can be paid, then surely, obviously, a journalist can be completely paid to mm. not go down certain routes and do that. And mm -hmm. I, think, I think we have seen... Um, a few a few things maybe i i don't think i can 
I can properly say, but um, yeah, there, there are some, some people that can be completely corrupted in that sense. And not to say that I would be if I was put in that mm. scenario. You, people don't know mm. in certain situations. But, um, but for me, I think it's, mo it's mostly just not having the overarch and mm. not, having, um, not having complete editorial control over you. The other mm. thing as well, though, which is interesting, is that, of course, there is that risk in mainstream media outlets, but presumably... There's, like to what extent does the, the the independent citizen journalist content creator himself mm. become a bit of a slave to his own audience yes. and what his own audience yes. expects? Like, is there not that risk? And it, yes. it dovetails nicely with what we were talking about earlier in terms of is there an incentive, an unhealthy incentive on the right at the moment mm. to see a conspiracy theory mm -hmm. in everything rather than yes. rather than having strict criteria for yes. conspiracies? This is this is the problem. You know, I try and say you know not everything is a conspiracy, not everything is a quote unquote false flag or you know you hear that a lot <laughs> yeah, right yes, yes. and um and you you have to you have to just sometimes you you have to spoon feed people mm -hmm. um and that's not in a patronizing way that's in that's in an honest lovable way mm -hmm. because you have to present information honestly and transparently you can't jump to conclusions immediately you mm -hmm. have to you ha it, it's like you have to take time mm -hmm. in, in the story or or what you're trying to portray and put across. And sometimes you'll run across um, subjects, immigration, I know I keep saying it, immigration seems to be the one mm -hmm. that some people just, they, they assume or, or they, they believe that you're going down a particular path that's uh, incendiary. Mm -hmm. Whereas no, you, presenting statistics and data is not, it shouldn't be incendiary. It mm -hmm. should be, there's a problem here we need to address it, we need to talk about it openly, and we need to come to some sort of solution that is beneficial and not uh, doesn't impede uh, upon, you know, dangerous ground. Yeah, that just sounds like a bunch of hate facts to me. <laughs> you know, I was just thinking, what are some good examples of like a British conspiracy theory? Like anytime anybody talks about conspiracy, they always talk American. about US stuff. Yeah. It yeah. is very American. Do you mean, well, do you mean, do you mean ones which I still I speculated about or which certainly happened? Either or. Yeah, I suppose I suppose the one that you gets mentioned most in again it does mean I'm going to have to mention immigration again. I think <laughs> I think the one which gets me mentioned most in a British context is one. There's that famous you might be familiar with it. There's that famous uh, article which was written by one of Tony Blair's speechwriters in the Evening Standard, basically admitting after the fact that immigration mass immigration as pursued post 1997 wasn't just an accident. Mm. Uh, the, the exact quote is this. It was part of a driving political purpose to rub the rub the, no, rub the, the rights noses in diversity. It, exactly yeah. to rub the rights yeah. nose in diversity and render their arguments out of date. There was this hope that by um, diversifying the population ethnically and, and religiously and all that sort of thing, it would be much easier to make the twenty first century a labour century in the way that the twentieth century had undoubtedly been a Tory century. Mm. And this was so, and that's something which has just just absolutely happened. And so, like the right is and 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 the and the patriotic um, mm. uh, working class left as well, I suppose, like old school working class left are completely horrified by by that conspiracy, which is pretty mm. out in the open at this point. And may and maybe the the idea of who actually runs our country, I guess, is is another one that people sort of um, look into, and that's. You know, people look mostly to the civil service mm. um, and whether it be activist or an activist class within Westminster and um, certain offices such as the Home Office and, mm. and various others that um, that is just like a purely activist type class. 
So that's another one. Why I do guess. you mention the? I, I, well, I think I know why, but why do you mention the Home Office in particular? And that, it relates to immigration, of course. But what, how, how do you think that that obstructs like democratic accountability in particular? Well, I think the example that comes to mind is Lee Anderson recently when he mm. questioned um, on the figures, and he asked about um, you know where are the figures from last week, mm. month before on on uh, people. Uh, <laughs> Who, who came here illegally by boat, or, mm. you know, paraphrasing that, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yes. And they didn't have anything, completely mm. nothing. And it's like, well, what are you doing every yeah. day? No, and, um, and I think you hear, you hear things, especially when um, Braverman was, was part of the Home Office, uh, that most of the time, I think a lot of, I think I did see, I read something about how they, the, um, the, <laughs> the people within the home office yeah. that were that were employed were almost celebrating yes. of her departure. Mm. Mm. Shouldn't be allowed. You shouldn't mm. be able to celebrate if you're holding an office. Absolutely. Like if you're working within that sort of environment, you, you're meant to be apolitical, impartial, scrupulously impartial. Exactly. And to hear things like that, sort of, it fuels into a conspiracy that mm. it is just an activist class exactly. within. Uh, these institutions rather than a set of like dutiful public servants exactly yeah. mm. so was there any one particular incident that made you want to actually go out and put your face in front of the camera and speak your mind was it was it covid or was it just kind of all these little things piling up around you and eventually you just <laughs> you had your fill <laughs> it was covid yeah? yeah yeah it was that it was the subject around that only because <coughs> what i what i was seeing on uh, the mainstream media and then what was being posted was complete opposites mm. And uh, I, I noticed, like I said earlier, that the mainstream media wasn't going out and asking these questions and actually mm. having a fair say on mm. why these people were disobeying lockdowns and, and, and things like that. And I thought, OK, well, I'm going to go out and ask these questions. And ever since then, it's just snowballed. Hmm. So, so are we talking about when anti-lockdown protests were taking place, you would go to these things? Yes. And you would... What, 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 what was the deficit between what the media would report on these things and what the police would say afterwards and what you saw? Yes. So, they, so the media would completely demonise this, um, this movement mm. um, who said it's not in their right... It's, it's not completely like a shambles to have, to have lockdowns within the UK. Um, and of course, it's going to lead to not only economic strain, but it was mostly about civil liberties mm -hmm. And the idea that you know the state with emergency powers can just just do this on a whim, mm -hmm. and to for me to go there and to ask the question why are you here today and to listen to the stories mm -hmm. of these people, you realise that they're just everyday people. They're not these far right, mm -hmm. you know, agitators. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. And you turn out they're just ordinary people that sure. are just very worried. Yes. And when when I realised that by going and actually you know listening to people. Uh, and doing it in front of camera, mm. you realise why didn't the media just go out and just ask these questions? Mm. But yeah, so that that was kind of the main drive. It's funny though because it goes to show that uh, their con their conception of a state of emergency being like the all-consuming point, which means that we wow, that's the name. Oh. As if, by magic, Ooh, happens, plug. as if by magic that happens to be the name of our most recent book, <laughs> State of right. Emergency. But th th this kind of obsession with like 
we're going to declare war on this, and therefore mm. all of the resources of society need to be instrumentalized by the state, including the people of society, consider the human resources of society mm. and the physical resources, and all this sort of thing have to be, and uh, financial resources have to be instrumentalized to pursue this sort of one goal, main goal. Mm. In, in certain instances, that can lead to an expansion of government power in yeah. the sense that, it, like what we saw with COVID, but it was also very interesting how we saw the, the views about there being a state of emergency around racism mm -hmm. leading to a relaxation of those same powers because mm -hmm. I, there needed to be a right for people to protest for example so mm -hmm. you had people saying things like well no 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 obviously black lives matter protests are completely yeah. different in kind from anti-lockdown yeah. protests suddenly because, covid didn't work exactly because, <laughs> no, well no they would say this the, the, the honest and intelligent ones well not maybe not intelligent but the honest ones would say something much more like well, no, no, racism is itself a pandemic, and so yes, and so and so and so they still have they, there's still that state of emergency mentality. Yeah. There was a uh, there was an open letter in America that went out, which was signed by all these doctors, Indeed. medical professionals, exactly. where it literally said like racism is a worse virus than COVID nineteen. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So they they go to great lengths, but they they do try to be consistent sometimes. Mm. Um, in you know this, but it's, it just happens. So happens that this kind of what's the word? This, this kind of paranoid approach to politics mm. uh, can can authorize all sorts of things speaking speaking of covid what do you make about the fact that like in case people don't know covid's actually kind of back a little bit like people are still getting oh, it like, yeah. like it'll never fully go away it's just gonna you know kind of get whittled down mm. but it, it's winter and people are getting sick and it's coming back mm -hmm. and there's no panic no nothing i've seen a few extra people wearing masks mm -hmm. you know we're not locked up like it seems just... like the, uh, the the nudge units yeah. aren't, aren't working this time <laughs> so yeah yeah what do you what do you make of the the like sort of the legacy of the virus in this country and do you think that there will always kind of be now like this uh like sort of damocles in the form of a big needle hanging above <laughs> all our heads at any moment you know yeah yeah no, COVID 23 I, could come out wrong I, I think back indoors i think um I think we saw the weaponization of fear um, for the for the last few years as well. And it's funny you mentioned you know COVID is apparently come back now for of course the winter time and uh, and it's actually quite nice to see that people aren't alarmist now or as alarmist as as it was originally. I know of course you could use hindsight bias for that of course. Mm. Um, but it's important to note that there were many people still just carrying, trying to carry on with their lives mm. without the whole mask mandate, without, um, you know, uh, just just legislation getting in, getting involved in people's homes mm. and, you know, encroaching upon that. The thing is, it went from suddenly COVID to war mm -hmm. within like an, an immediate reaction. You're talking, like, about, talking about Ukraine. Ukraine, yeah. yes. Um, in I terms of thinking that when the war broke out, I was like, "Well, that's the virus." Yeah, that's the that, virus. That's, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Vladimir Putin just killed COVID immediately. <laughs> it was quite, yeah, interesting. But um, yeah, I think, I think seeing the past couple of years with you look into things such as the nudge units mm. that are part of obviously. Well, they say they're independent. They're not really obviously because they're in partnership with the establishment. But when you see these nudge units, really really push out their, their, their narrative and trying to get people whipped up in a state of fear to abide by rules that are put out by the state. I think now, because you've seen an ease of that and people are just sick of it, hmm. people have just seen that and gone, mm -hmm. I don't want to do this again. I've got a question for actually the two of you, which I don't have a good answer to, but it's something I've thought a lot in the past year of being here. What do you think it is about the British culture that you have like 
the most CCTV cameras everywhere, mm. the nudge units, the, like even like Sadiq Khan being like, like mate with like three oh, yeah. three A's and a yeah, sharp yeah, T. Yeah, it's yeah. like this is how we can like psycho linguistically like break it down to like influence you. That does seem to be like a very uniquely British thing. You don't see that anywhere else. It's also a very new thing. I mean, like, yes. the, 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 I mean, practically everything you just listed would have horrified uh, our ancestors in both political parties. Yeah. Like mm. people like Clement Attlee and Churchill would have been equally yeah. horrified by the by the way in which like, this, this this state was taking it upon itself in mm. the, in the name of why social engineering or in, in the name of safety or whatever, in, or whatever it might be, taking, taking on more and more powers unto itself. There's always been a respect, historically at least. It's something we've forgotten. It's something we've been alienated from, I would argue. Um, uh, but there's always been this, this, this kind of love of private life and eccentricity yes. and the eccentricity that can be born there in the English. Like, what John when we had John O'Sullivan on recently, and he, he, I hadn't heard this comment before, but there was a beautiful line by a journalist in the 1930s who was once asked by a Stalinist intellectual, what do you like about Britain anyway? What's so good about it? Today? He said, Britain is a, is a country in which a man can call his soul his own. Like, there's, that, there's been that yeah. understanding yeah. Uh, which, we've, which we've lost. And so uh, all, all of those things are the result of very recent innovations, like largely dating from Blair, actually. Yeah, well, it, it seems to me, yeah, like you said, like Harrison said, it's, it's a very, very new thing. And... Um, We've had 13 years of Tory rule, yet we, they could have done so much mm. with rolling back Blair legislation from free speech legislation from the Communications Act of 2003, from scaling back this surveillance state, as you call it. But now, I think with, this, with our culture, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but after so long, people just kind of embed it and just get on with it. Yes. We have this very much like, just get on with it yes. attitude so after a while mm. like we i don't notice you know cctv cameras anymore i just don't notice it but for a, a foreigner that would come over and, and see it um especially in, in in the americas would would see it uh they they it's almost so potent mm. to them i don't know if you agree no with i that, do agree i, I completely agree and it's almost it's, it's almost a a reflection of like the problem with the conservative temperament. I'm talking about on a personal level at this point. Mm. Like, there is a concert. There is a concert. There is a bias within the conservative to revere like what what's been handed down to him. And so, if you're if you've inherited a society as we have, and I was born in '98. I don't know when you were born, but if you've been born into a society where you have mm. CCTV and you have and you, all the things that you listed, the nudge, nudge units and all these mm. things, it becomes very difficult, even if you do have a conservative mentality, to imagine a world without them. Yeah, because you need to know true. a little bit about history. You need to know that they're recent innovations, that they're kind of, uh, that they're bastardizations of the English spirit rather than yes. something which is consistent with it. And so that, that this is a, a problem. And there's been this timidity in the conservative movement, I would argue, since Blair, exactly as you say, that we need to, we, well, Blair has been so overwhelmingly successful in the same way that Blair thought Thatcher was overwhelmingly successful and in the same way that conservatives up until Thatcher thought the post-war consensus was incredibly successful. There was this belief that, you, well, politics just now takes place on these terms. And like, in the same way that Blair made his peace with Thatcher, the conservatives, rather than unpicking much of Blair's legacy, have made peace with it and tried to be successful within it. Mm -hmm. And that's been the, 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 the I think, that, I hope that proves their monumental downfall next year. Yes, I agree. Yeah. What do you what do you make of you know if what do you think is the best option for a kind of a, a resurrection of like a true conservative movement in the UK? Do you think it'll end up being something like Blue Blair? Oh, gosh, mm. haven't, haven't we just had that? Yeah, <laughs> we pretty much have have had that. Um, what do you mean by Blue Blair? 
Well, in terms yeah. of like an actual like Machiavellian, ah, Tory, highly competent, mm -hmm. reptilian mm, sort of figure. But not with the same ideas. No. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Mentality, but not mm. the ideology. I agree. Okay. That would be good. <laughs> I just think, <laughs> like, I genuinely think, and it's quite crass of me, but I, I do genuinely think that the Tory party now just needs to, needs to die. Mm -hmm. It just needs to be put into ashes and then it will have its have its revival. The problem is we live in almost like a, a uni-party type state where both Tory and Labour have the same agenda, as you will, whether it be net zero, whether mm. it be immigration, whether it be policies through environmentalism, climate change, all of these um, types of uh, policy, it's all unilaterally mm. just the same. And what do you do when your head of state uh, and both parties that people are stuck in this dynamic of voting either Labour or, or Tory, what do you do when all three, the Trinity, <laughs> is completely ideologically captured in yes. that sort of way? Yes. And the public don't necessarily agree with that, or a, a large chunk of the public do not necessarily agree with yes. it. Mm. Um, what do you do in that scenario? I, I don't know. But there yeah. needs to be one of them at least it's not going to be Labour, but it will be. I think it will be the Conservative Party. One of them needs to go to ashes mm. and then it needs to be revived with um, more competence and, ironically, just a nudge yeah. <laughs> in, in a better direction. Yes. And just going back to true family values and real Conservative policy, you know, putting, you know, like, what's funny is the SDP party is way more Conservative than I've mm. ever seen. Mm. than this party has been since it's um, uh, since it was elected into power almost is it 13 14 years ago 13 years ago 13 years point, ago yeah. yeah so yeah it just it sounds crass it just needs to die <laughs> but, but it would also but but to Evan's point like when it revives or, mm. or when the conservatism revives whether mm. it takes the form of the conservative party like rebranded or some alternative um, does like is is there a lack of like I don't know, sort of Machiavellian cunning on the right generally, which which inhibits us in a way that it doesn't inhibit our opponents. Like, like we, we, we are, who was it? I, said, I, met some, I met an intelligent young conservative recently who said to me that, um, that you know, conservatism today is just like progressivism at the, at the speed limit. Like, mm. just, okay. like yeah. Okay, yeah, let's, let, yeah, let's, let's do it, but let's, do, let's be safe about it. Yeah. Yes. Rather than like completely trying to overhaul the yes. left's agenda and like tear Blair's legacy to shreds to, yes. the, to the extent that you can. I mean, the, like, problem, the problem is we, we don't have anyone, I can't think of anyone in, in Westminster that is willing to actually really go for it mm -hmm. and just not care. But you don't, it can't just be one person. You need a band of people in mm. order to sort of make that kind of change. So mm. when, when we speak about the Tory party dying and it reviving into something that's way more confident and way more conservative, it, it does need to resonate within Westminster. Mm. And that's, that's, that's the primary function. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, I mean, it's very wishful thinking at, yeah. this, at this stage. Um, Do you think there's an element of the, of the kind of class hierarchy of the UK which is preventing this from, from happening? Because yes, when, yeah. when I, I mean, the paradigm that you've pointed out that we all agree on, you know, historically is like pretty, it doesn't really last very long, that people want to vote for something that doesn't exist. Mm. It's interesting to me that you're not seeing it here when you are seeing it in 
all over the EU or yeah. the US or now in Middle and South America. And here, oh, there's all the talent, there's all the brains. I harp on this point constantly. And, and everybody's saying the exact same thing. And mm. yet, like, it's like everybody's standing around waiting for someone else to do it. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think there's, there's a few things. I think class could be definitely a factor. I think the problem is our political system is very sluggish. It takes quite a long time to get things processed. But not only that, our voting system as well. I mean, you take the UKIP argument um, that happened um, not too long ago, actually, um, where they had X amount of millions of votes, but only managed to gain, I believe, one seat. Mm. This was in 2015. 2015, yeah. yes. And when you see stuff like that, it almost, people just give up. People mm. see that and go, well, what's the point? Mm. And I think now, more than ever, we're seeing more people saying, well, I'm not going to vote, what's the point? Mm. And I think we're seeing that now more than ever. And I think the reason because of that is the political system that we're you know, entrenched with, um, with no room to budge in that sense. So, yeah, I think, I think, mainly, it's, I think mainly it's probably the systems that's around. Hmm. Why would class inhibit it? I think, again, this is just from an outsider's but perspective. Okay, why might it? Why might it? Yeah, just to, it, just it understand seems to me that, like, like, if you look at, like, let's just use Trump as the most obvious example. Mm -hmm. Like, coming in, basically, you know, go, sticking his finger up to the Republican Party, taking mm. it over against their will, yeah. and basically doing so by being, like, a, a quote-unquote populist, crass, mm -hmm. like, wrestling commentator-type figure. Mm. Um, everything he did was low-class, but it worked. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, if you do something like this, like, maybe you could say, like, Farage would be, like, a British equivalent. Mm. Farage is classed as low-class. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's very interesting. It's, I, I, it's, it's, it's not easy to pin down because he went to... Uh, what's it called? That school in he went to Dulwich, which is a which is a, a reasonably. Uh, I think PG Woodhouse went there. It's, yeah. it's a, it's, well, I mean, Trump's a billionaire. Oh, that's true yeah, as so well. That's, like, that's, like, that's true as well. But yeah. we're talking about here. We're talking about like class in this con in the British context isn't necessarily yeah, attached different. to how much money you have. So like true. Alan Sugar is a billionaire, but no one would say that he's upper class. Hmm. Whereas mm. and so it's, it's it's slightly different in the US. But so but so but Farage like he he does a he does appeal appeal to a certain kind of. Uh, working class spirit, I suppose, yeah. of like be, being no, no, no nonsense, cigarette, mm. pint. Yeah, it just know. seems like it's like to, to do all the things that we talk about need to be done. Mm. A lot of people would agree with it, but it would also just be so terribly rude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not a bad impression. No, no. Yeah, you're, acclim not. you're acclimatizing. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. You know that, that that's, that certainly could, could be a, a could be part of it. I, I certainly think it would account for a, a lot of the timidity in the Conservative Party itself, which I, I think Peter Hitchens has defined the Conservative Party before. Because the Conservative Party only exists for obtaining office for the sons of gentlemen. That that's all it's about. Like, mm. There's no like content to it. It's just a kind of like vacuous, grinning, aristocratic, you know, outfit which will do almost anything it can to maintain the luster of being in office. It's like the Reform Club, but they're actually running the country. Basically, yeah. yes. <laughs> or, 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 yes, failing to run it uh, effectively, and certainly failing to run it in a conservative way. No, it, it, is, um, it is very possible. I've never... What made you... What, what, why have you thought that? Is that just the part, result of the, the just, function of just, being here that you thought that? Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe it just sticks mm. out because if you come in from abroad, like, you just don't you know have just that things. inbuilt thing. But, like... Mm. Again, too, it's happening everywhere else but here, yes. which means I do think it will happen eventually. But the reason it's it's lagging so long is mm. I feel like nobody just wants to be like there's a, this there's, there's a lot of appeasement I think as well. I think a lot of the the Westminster Conservatives or um, 
even people who want to make some kind of noise, mm -hmm. they, they almost feel like, I don't know if you, if you think this as well, but uh, they almost want to appease to the other side because they're afraid mm. um, because there's a big chokehold on culture from the activist class. Yes. Um, and I just, that's why I think it's holding a lot of people back because the activist class does have a lot of power mm -hmm. in this country through institutions, from education to Westminster itself. Mm. Um, and I think that's as well has created such a huge barrier for someone to come in and break it down and just not care. Absolutely, I mean, but also so, like, like social status is sort of bound up with opinions today mm. in a way that before it was probably more, like low status today, this is something Rob Henderson's obviously spoken mm. about this um, on, on, on here and elsewhere, like, lo, lo, low status today doesn't so much track like where you are in the chain of being in any kind of Elizabethan sense or anything like that. Like low status or high status, it means like, do you have the officially approved high status opinions? And so I, I, I don't know how true this is that Dominic Cummings isn't always necessarily to be trusted, but, but um, he did put a tweet out recently where he said, well, I suggested to Boris Johnson that in order to stop the boats and reduce our numbers, he should do this, this, this and this. But he said to me that he didn't want to upset his liberal Westminster mm. friends, not get, not stop getting invites to invitations to dinner parties mm. and upset the, the FT, like the Financial Times Club. Like, I, I imagine we're, we, we're fairly immune to this because we mm. don't mix. Because we're not, we're not constrained. I'm not getting invited anyway. <laughs> yeah. That's true. I'm not getting anything yeah. to lose. Exactly. But it means that it, mean, it must be harder to, to, yeah. to, to, to do what is necessary when it's going to be perceived as low status, not because of, it, of any kind of class connotation, but necessarily, or maybe, I don't know, but because of you know, the, the fact that status opinions today and outlooks are status tracking. And mm. I, think, I think, like, the Trump example is so unique. I think it's because... It's because over in America, it, it's an individual can just rise up and, and be able to crash through barriers. Here, for something like that to work, you do need a band of people as mm. opposed to just one individual. So if it was to be, for example, a Farage, then he will need a band of people to, of course, lift up as well. Unfortunately, it's mostly in this system, it's to do with um, appeasement to the party as opposed to policy. Mm. And that's... That's a big struggle. When you say appeasement to the party as opposed to policy, do you mean what? what keeping be, in line. With keeping the party. in line with the party rather than your convictions. Yes. And like what the people expect, yes. people expect of you. Now, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that there are all sorts of like, customary facts about like, the Westminster system, which mm. just makes it much harder for an incumbent to, mm. or, or an insurgent to have success. But like, I, I suppose I, I suppose that this is a question worth asking of like citizen journalists mm. as well. I mean, in, in, in the same way that we're talking about political insurgents, there's mm. a sense in which in the media ecosystem, you you and pe people like you and people like Andy No and uh, yeah, others yeah. and people like Ink Monocle uh, yeah. recently on Twitter, it's well, well worth looking at his um, his work on, on the sort of the, the anti-Israel uh, protests and all that sort of thing. Uh, you guys are in many ways agents of, of chaos, you're, you're doing, you're, which is good. Like you're, you're, you're blowing it wide open and, and like that's an important thing to be doing where, when people feel that they're not being told yeah. the full story. Mm. But is there a sense in which, like, is there any goal? Do you, do you think of yourself as trying to hijack mainstream media in a way that we're talking about a potential political insurgent trying to hijack Westminster mm -hmm. or is or for you is or for, for you is citizen journalism just an end in itself or is it a means to an end um, I, I think because of the ease of it now um, you know anyone can whip out a phone go there and 
you know, go to the scene or the front lines or wherever, whip out a phone and actually document what is happening. Mm -hmm. So now it's so easy for someone to um, embroil themselves within citizen journalism. Um, but it's now a case of doing it right and mm. doing it. And I, when I say doing it right, obviously there's, you know, big contingent there. But mm -hmm. when I say doing it right, <laughs> I mean um, doing it in a way that's honest and doing it in a way that um, that that also you're, you're working for the people, mm -hmm. a bit like an MP. Forming a public service. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And I think I think that's how I view citizen journalism now is, is yeah, like you said, a public service, um, which, you know, sounds very sort of, you know, hippie or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But um, to be honest, I think sometimes when you see, a lot of people get blackpilled nowadays with, with what's happening, especially in this country with, with Westminster and the machine um, surrounding that. and people feel like there's not a lot of hope. It's just about going out there and actually mm. just telling the truth and showing people and letting as well people make their own minds up. I mm. think people forget that. It's easy to spin a bias on something. Mm -hmm. It's easy to spin a narrative on something uh, with a caption from a mm. video. But if you go out there and you just point the camera, show people what, not necessarily what they want to see, but <laughs> you know. Well, they're not being shown. Well, mm. they're not being shown, exactly. And just, saying it how it is but in a way that people can make their own minds up i think you'll see more and more resurgence now and and i think i think now more than ever especially with the online safety bill uh, and various other uh, narratives and, and media offcom everything yeah. it's going to make things more difficult but it's going to make things more necessary mm. and i think necessary is way more important. Yeah. Do you think these legacy media institutions, uh, I'm sure the BBC will still be around, but mm. um, you know, pick, pick, your, pick your poison here. Um, do you think they'll even exist in, in 10 years? Great question. They'll try, uh, I think, I couldn't make a prediction on which one, because <laughs> um, that would be near enough impossible unless I knew something. Um, I think, it will just be about adaption now. I think I think it sort of explains why um, we're seeing more and more legislation being pushed through. I know I just mentioned the online safety bill, which um, which I've done uh, quite a bit of digging into, and it's mm. um, it seems to me that it's more catered towards obviously Ofcom now transcending into the broad, not just obviously the broadcast world with their chokehold there, but now onto the internet. Yes, mm. and you can you can almost see that this is happening around in other countries, Canada as well, mm -hmm. uh, America as well, I think Ministry of Truth. Uh, I, think, I, think that's, I think that's what it's called over there, I believe. But um, Not remotely sinister. Not remotely sinister indeed. <laughs> is, that, is that real? Very, yeah. <laughs> I know that's a Twitter account. Is that actually a ministry? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you're, you're seeing this, this complete element of control. And I think when you, when you say, are they going? Are they going to you know, not exist in terms of the legacy media outlets? I think they'll cling on, mm -hmm. um, but I think people are more interested now in sourcing from Twitter because it's now being so open, and people mm. are—it's like the veil has been taken off. Mm. And I think people will more gravitate towards uh, social media as a source of—that's—that's mm. um, that's why I say citizen journalism needs to be done correctly, and sometimes just not not putting out an opinion and just yes. showcase but, but also they wouldn't be they wouldn't be trying antics like the online True. safety bill if people like you weren't having success and you weren't eating into the influence or like challenging yeah. the influence of the of the legacy media in terms of their in terms of their uh, their fate 
I, I can't, again, I can't know for sure. I would imagine that what's much more likely to happen is that there would just be fewer of them and the, the, the energy would become yes. sort of concentrated mm. in one place. It'll, like, it'll be merges. Exactly. And they'll, they'll fall by the wayside and like they'll be like, well, is, do we really need MSNBC when we have CNN? <laughs> yeah, why yeah. why yeah. don't we just... Why don't we collaborate, we collaborate and, and pull resources Possibly. I, 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 I don't know about that. But no, it sounds like you think your role, and this is a quite a nice way of thinking about it, is kind of boosting morale in the culture, yeah. the culture war. Like yeah. giving people truth, but also giving them a, a hope that there are people out there who... Who are, who are willing to do this sort of frontline journalism. There was a case of this recently. It's always you know, difficult to, to talk about uh, Tommy Robinson, but oh, like, yeah. recently I think you, you, were at, you were present when he was arrested. Is that, yeah. is that um, correct? In I, was, I was at the Armistice Day parade, so it was the Cenotaph incident. Yes, um, we, like we, and so what did you see on, like, just to take one example, which I'm sure our viewers are interested in, uh, what what ha what happened that day? What was yeah. talked about that day? And also mention this this business you've had seeking freedom of information request from the Metropolitan Police. Ah yes. Please. So so on Armistice Day, um, there was a lot of talk uh, because to Tommy Robinson went online and spoke about <coughs> um, spoken about potentially that um, uh, the pro Palestinian. Uh, protests that were going to potentially march through the cenotaph and interrupt the uh, the minute silence. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a lot of chatter online about about him sort of organising a sort of a rally and march. A lot of people said, "Don't go," including myself. That was my view too. Yeah, yeah. I said, "Don't go," because you know, regardless of of what happens, narrative control. I I exactly, yeah. and you know, you know the media with. You know, Tommy mm. Robinson being there, it mm -hmm. will um, stifle things mm. and they will paint people mm. as, as, you know, whatever, even though, you know, I'm sure he doesn't mm. care about all these labels. But it would but also it would, it would also distract from the main we'll get to the but from the main point. So that instead of the headlines having to be like parade of ethno religious supremacism overshadows what should have been a day of solemnity on the armistice. Instead of being that, it becomes like far right thugs, yeah, disturb, yeah, um, however yeah. wrong and, and yeah. sort of and, and uh, clumsy that kind of those kind of sorts of characterizations are. It just means that the main point of the story that should be being elevated yes. gets completely missed. Yes, and I, I said I said don't go. Um, he has obviously he has a right to be there. Course, I yeah. I believed as well um, that, that you know regardless of protest, even though I think it's crass and I disagree with it, you do have the right to protest um, even on that day. You know as much it's quite controversial, but mm. um, I do believe in 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 the right to assemble still, even if I disagree with it. So the the media you could see the media machine working for that week. Because um, there was mm. debates all across that week about whether it should go ahead, whether it, sh it should it shouldn't, and then of course the talk of Tommy Robinson potentially turn turning up. So I um, I got in contact with Tommy and I said I'd I'd like to join you and uh, you know just document what is happening um, from your side to start with, and then after that I'll go to the, the pro Palestinian side and just to document what was happening there. Um, so I met with Tommy beforehand um, and we walked down and I filmed everything. I got. A, a brief in interview with him to get his viewpoint of the day and then when I arrived um, there was a scuffle that happened just before the cenotaph mm. where police purposely and I witnessed it with my own eyes and it's all on camera um, police purposely tried to block uh, attendees from going to the cenotaph which caused people confusion stress and all of a sudden <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, you know, a load of people started they, they shoving. Stormed, they stormed the barriers, basically. They, they, they stormed it completely. And um, the police, it, it looked, you could, when I put out the, 
I thought I'd done justice that day because I put I put out the video and then I had Alistair Campbell retweet it, so, and, and then of course uh, Tommy retweeting it, and then all these people from so all clearly, these sides. Clearly, you're, so clearly yeah. that was you know I I felt like I'd done okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so which was very weird, <laughs> but um, but <laughs> I managed to I, I managed to get it all on camera, and it showed that the police were actually instigating it. But the media had already gotten to work. To be clear, how were the police instigating it? So forming this line as people were just can't, like peacefully walking towards yeah. the cenotaph to pay their respects, police came yeah. out of nowhere, uh, started you know the the, the line. The, mm. the I'm not quite sure what it's what it's called exactly, but they run in like a line and then they just form. Uh, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they just you know batons drawn and yeah. just stopped people and i remember it does it does um uh, connect well with what the only thing that i could really hear that was audible from i went maybe it was your video maybe it was another one i heard someone go oh yeah when it's us you prevent us yes. that sort of thing yeah, like when it's yeah. oh, of course when it's us there's all of a sudden yeah. well, no public order da, 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 yeah. and all that sort of thing and so like a lot of that like even though i think it was wise and uh, sorry unwise and and um and and wrong to like once that it had been formed to mm. storm it there's a sense in which, obviously, you, like, these people's instincts are fundamentally sound and correct. Like they, they, yeah. they, they understand what Suella Bravman was pointing to in her article that there there are these double standards with Massively. with respect to policing. And only yeah. a week after that, there were sort of like sort of pro uh, anti-Israel protesters mm. who were sort of climbing over uh, like British public monuments yes. and like smothering them in the Palestinian flag, and like the police just sort of stand just there. Just standing there, well, not the doing only people anything. that are policed are the ones that will consent to being policed at this point. Indeed, mm. yeah. yes, because that's really that's a really good point, and I think it's because of this that like, the police no longer thinks of itself. This is this is so clear. The Metropolitan Police, at least, or, or the police in diverse parts of the country, if I can put it that way, no longer think of themselves as sort of enforcers of the law without fear or favour. They think of themselves as a kind of like like diplomatic referees between different communities. That's yeah. a great way of putting it. And, 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 yeah. The arbiters of ethnic tension. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, we will put out community reassurance patrols because mm. as we know, that, as Sadiq Khan literally said, diversity is our strength. But yeah. as we know, when there's conflict in the Middle East, that can flare up in London somehow. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. or, or, all this sort of thing. And so they do. once you think of it in that way, all of a sudden the community, which is, mo as you, it goes to what you're saying, which is most willing to say, we're not going to be pleased, mm. and which is going to cry racism or cry bigotry or that sort of thing. The police, being thinking of themselves as diplomatic referees rather than actual enforcing the law without fear or favour, they have they have to pander to those those demands. Not to shoehorn in my favourite country, but in Singapore, the police are actually officially recognised as arbiters of ethnic tensions, but it's yeah. just not it's just, biased it's just, at all. It really? Right. Yeah. So, like, if you multiculturalism is built into the Singaporean constitution, yes. and if you disturb the peace between the different races mm. that live within Singapore, which demographics are tightly mm. controlled. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter if you're a Muslim, <laughs> oh, wow. Malay, or Indian, or Chinese, or expat, wow. or whatever. They will crush you. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> but regardless of how the Metropolitan Police think of themselves, they, they weren't remotely interested in your freedom of information no. request. Were they? No. Like, why did you why did you file one? What did they say? And like, what does this tell us that, about because the blob generally? I yeah, yeah. I, I because I saw the media machine get to work. I saw that, and I thought, oh, hang on a minute. I was there. I saw what happened. I've got it on on video. Here it is posting it for people to make their own mind up. And uh, unilaterally, everyone agreed that the police instigated this. So I thought, okay, I'm, I'm gonna have to file a, an FOI because they're not being honest. They're, they're just, they're completely shunning, mm -hmm. shunning this away. 
mainly because it is Tommy Robinson, mm-hmm. um, and there quite clearly is some kind of two-tier of system against him, obviously. obviously yeah. um, and this has been happening for quite a long time with, 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 with Tommy. So I decided I'm going to put out an FOI. I asked for communications, memos, emails, any communications between um, the within, Metropolitan yeah, Within police, the Metropolitan Police, yeah, yeah. Within the Met to figure out... Uh, what was said even before the protests uh-huh. and the communications uh, of particular officers that were involved in this incident to okay. try and see why they decided to use this particular tactic of stopping people from mm-hmm. going, who ordered it, why, mm-hmm. and just to compare notes as well between uh, Tommy Robinson's um, uh, attendees that were going to the Cenotaph to the uh, Palestinian um, protesters that were that were there on the same day and just to see just to view how they were viewing both sort of sets of or groups of people. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they took over 20 days um, and that is actually, uh, you're not allowed to do that. It, it has to be within 20 days and I requested that. Mm. They then said, oh, under section they have, 30. They, they, they have to reply within 20 days. Yeah, sorry, yeah, they yeah. had to reply within 20. Uh, yeah. And um, they said, oh, under section whatever, we were, we were able to push this back. So they did. And now I have to wait until January 24, to which um, obviously the narrative's completely gone. No, nobody's yeah. talking about this anymore. Yeah. That's that's it. It's done. Hush, hush. Yeah, yeah. It, and it, it very much is like that. If there's something that's quite clearly, well, I say eight out, eight times out of ten, if it's something that quite clearly you can you can stir a narrative or stir the pot with, mm-hmm. when you try and find more information on it, it tends to just be knocked back as soon as we've all turned our attention away to something, to something else, else. Mm. and i've noticed this time and time again so we're just seeing it again what do you make of the uh this sort of cordon sanitaire of around tommy robinson who i mean again too as i've now said a few times on this episode like when i come in looking from the outside you know i don't really see tommy saying things that don't sound just like douglas murray on like trigonometry mm-hmm. a few months ago like mm-hmm. it, i mean he's saying it with a very different kind of mannerism mm-hmm. and different accent mm-hmm. but I, and i don't know the full history of the edl or of tommy mm-hmm. of all these things but like if i just look at how he kind of exists uh, today mm-hmm. it doesn't really seem like he's you know so far outside the overton window that he's like you know persona non grata but everybody talks about him and he's like hush tones yeah like, it's, like, it's it's very very hush hush um yeah, you've met him. You've met, him. met him. One like I, us. What do you make of him? I, I, I like him personally. I don't have. I don't have a problem with with Tommy whatsoever. Um, uh, you know, he he is his own worst enemy at times, mm. um, and I think he even agrees with that. Yeah. Um, the thing is, there are things that I disagree with with Tommy, like everyone. You know, and it's important to note when I when I do journalism or when I'm when I'm doing citizen journalism or, or whatever, and I'm I'm talking to people, it's important to go out on the day. And do your work, and and to be as impartial as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that the press wouldn't be with Tommy on that day, <laughs> so I so I thought, okay, well that that to me isn't fair because mm. you're not seeing both sides of the story in that in that in that respect. So that's why I decided to go and I got in contact with him and and I met with him and just to get that side. Mm-hmm. Mm. There's also a question that which I like to ask, which is that where is the Hungarian Tommy Robinson? And like, the reason why I think that's a, a forceful question with a, with, a, with a great deal of thrust to it is because when you have a, a fundamentally patriotic elite, which is not 
committed to using its own people as, a, as guinea pigs in some mm -hmm. reckless demographic experiment the, the, of the kind that we've gone through over the last 40 years, you're not going to get people from the, the lower ends of society, from the working class um, uh, end of society, speaking out about it and there may be times and there have been times and he's definitely got better there's definitely been an evolution like he's got mm. much more like mm. um he's he's at, at first it was quite impulsive then he actually learned quite a bit about islam he read quite a lot about it he's clearly mm -hmm. knows quite a bit about about, about the subject he's pretty mm -hmm. rigorous in terms of his statistics and that sort of thing if he's his own worst enemy at times he does sometimes um it's not so much that he does bad things, but he does unwise things. Like he falls into elephant traps. Like he gets mm -hmm. there's a contempt of court order, and he violates it mm. on camera. It's just like, mm. Mm. and obviously they're going to bang you up for that. So he he has all of these sort of I would say like strategic flaws to to him, but uh, he wouldn't exist if it weren't for the fact that we don't have people like Douglas Murray, the people who you would expect to to be making these decisions in government. And when you do have patriotic mm. like uh, people in, in government who genuinely do does care for its own people. People like Tommy Robinson just go to losing games on the weekend, and they don't they don't become a political phenomenon. <laughs> and so that where is the Hungarian Tommy Robinson? He doesn't exist. I think the establishment created him essentially exactly. in that way because exactly. they weren't they weren't um, they weren't addressing problems at the time. Indeed, um, and that's that's just the way it is. You know, you have a working class man from Luton mm -hmm. um, who who wants to ask very potent questions that people are quite generally quite terrified to answer mm. and uh, or to ask sorry um and to answer and to answer yes yeah um so it was it was inevitable really that uh, that a tommy robinson would would occur mm. um so but it's always yeah. fascinating to me too and i've spoken about this but how it, this dynamic played out with trump where it's mm. like when trump lost the 2020 election everyone on the left was like Oh, we've like destroyed like the big baddie, and now all his like his his. <laughs> There's little, always a boogeyman. Yeah, his, yeah, but like all his like little servants out there in the boondocks will like turn off or whatever, like the end of like a Marvel movie, like they'll all like turn into dust. And it's like you know, if let's say you locked up Tommy Robinson for the rest of his life, everybody who likes the things that he says are still out there. Like mm. yeah, like you, you, he's just a figurehead. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. You're turning him into yeah. a martyr. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is it, and I think it's it's very dangerous to to do. Uh, things like that when you know you just you just lock someone up just for you know what he's what he talks about uh, essentially you know whether you agree with it or disagree with it you know I, I thought I, I I was under the the impression that this country was was founded on the battle of ideas essentially and that everyone you would have hoped would would be able to to sit and just um, you know, if a bad idea comes along, you would have a good idea to replace it, mm -hmm. and you'd be able to to do a tour of the <coughs> But unfortunately, we don't live in those times anymore, where you know it's guilt by association. Oh, you interview this person or you, you speak to that person, that means you endorse everything they yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're labelled the same person. Mm. Whereas, it's created that that cloud of, um, it's that it's created that cloud of worry. Mm. Um, you know, sitting here today, I'm sure you both don't endorse everything I say. Of course not. And you don't. It's an interview. Mm. But people forget that. Mm. Um, and people forget that guilt by association just only, it's, it narrows the conversation. Um, so It's the mark of a declining society. Well, listen, yeah. Lewis, thank you so much for joining us in Deprogram. Keep buggering on, boosting morale in the culture <laughs> war so that we can keep buggering on. Very good of you to join us. Thank Evan, you. thanks as ever. Thank You've you. been watching Deprogrammed. Make sure to like, subscribe, leave a comment if you wish.
and we shall see you on the next one. Hello, if you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.